Today's scripture reading is from James 1, 1 through 11. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given, given him. But let, you, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you again, Anna Kay. Good morning, everybody. A little bit of a hiatus from worshiping together, uh, not voluntarily due to the snow last week. Really glad to see you back. And uh, we're also missing some people this morning. Uh, there are about 115 or so youth on the youth retreat this weekend. And then the choir that uh, ordinarily uh, is right behind the band has taken all of January off. I'm sure you've noticed that. And they will be back with us in February as well. So, uh, Good times for reunion. Uh, we're in the, the book of James, and uh, this is our third of several messages. We're doing an expositional series, which means basically we go through the book from start to finish, gradually week after week, and the subtitle for this series is The Ethics of Grace. And today uh, the subject is uh, what we're calling sustainable happiness, or maybe the, 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 the more true word there is joy. And uh, what I'd like to do is start with a little bit of an anecdote from somebody whose name is, is really familiar in theological conversations, and that is the name of Jonathan Edwards, who lived in the 18th century. And uh, Edwards has been identified by the Encyclopedia Britannica as the most brilliant mind to ever step foot on American soil. He was a president at Princeton University. He's written books that still enrich millions and millions of people today. Uh, he's very famous, especially for his work called Religious Affections. Uh, another way that that book could have been titled is Theology on Fire. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is a terrific example about how the imagination and the heart are animated as we're uh, encountered by the truth of Scripture and what it tells us about the nature and character of God and, and also our uh, relationship with Him. And so Edwards at one point wrote what uh, is called his personal narrative, which was a bit like a diary. And I'm going to start by reading an excerpt from that personal narrative, and it was about an experience that he had in the woods on his horse in 1737. And he talked in that personal narrative about a grace that appeared, calm and sweet. The person of Christ appeared so ineffably excellent with an excellency great enough to swallow up all thought 
and conception, and I continued in this state, Edward says, for about an hour. That kept me the greater part of the time in the flood of tears, just weeping aloud. I felt an ardency of soul to be full of Christ alone, to love him with a whole and pure love, and to trust in him, to live upon him, to serve and follow him, to be perfectly made pure with a divine heavenly purity. So this is just a sampling of a lifetime of joy experienced by Jonathan Edwards. This was a frequent experience of his, Edwards says, sort of this rapturous joy in the presence of God. Now, it might be easy to assume after you listen to his resume and after you hear excerpts like this, sort of mountaintop experiences that happened all throughout his life with God, it might be easy to assume that Edwards lived a charmed, comfy, cozy life. And what many people are unaware of is that the joy and the religious affection that Jonathan Edwards talked about so much came to him through a life of chronic pain. Most people don't know that Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and he was fired. He was thrown out of his church by congregants. And the movement to throw him out of the church was led by some who he had once known as his closest friends. So he'd experienced betrayal. He worked on a frontier as a missionary in a small settlement, and he was daily afraid for his life and, and, and the life of his family because they were constantly under the threat of attack uh, of, of uh, the uh, tribal natives, much like uh, the famous missionary Jim Elliott with the Aka Indians. He was sick his entire life with uh, an intestinal disease, with poor indigestion. And in 1758, when he took over as the president of Princeton University, uh, he received a smallpox vaccination and actually caught smallpox through the vaccination and died about a month later. That was his life. And he died before any of his best-known writings or works were published. And so how does a man who lives a life in this way speak of such incredible, or as he says, ineffably excellent joy? James helps us to tap into why here. James is wisdom literature, and wisdom is essentially the ability to see things as they really are, to see God as he really is, and so on. And so our main question today is, how can joy be experienced when your circumstantial world is actually falling apart and collapsing. We have three headings that we'll take a look at today. One is resilience, another is wisdom, and then the final is a supportive presence. So, resilience. James paints a picture of vulnerability through an image in verse 6 when he talks about how sufferings and trials can actually make the unstable person, the double-minded person, be tossed around like, like waves. If you've ever stood in, in, in the waves of an ocean when the tide is high, you, you know what he's talking about. You can probably get that image in your head. And what, what is the occasion that, 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 that tosses us around is what he calls trials or tribulations. And it's in the face of 
hard circumstances or trials or tribulations that Paul inserts this word which functions as the anecdote to being tossed around. And that word is perseverance, or some translators uh, translate it endurance. The word, the Greek word is hypomene, which means to hyperstand or to superstand when those waves are going back and forth. He's talking about uh, an ability that the gospel of Jesus Christ avails or provides or makes accessible to those who are trained by it, that, that, that can actually move us toward being people of unflappable poise, immovable, unshakable, anchored, and courageous in the face of difficult things. So there are two things that happen with trials, according to James. One is that trials reveal the character that's already in us in ways that mountaintop experiences don't reveal the character that's already in us. And the second is that trials build our character. So, so first, trials will reveal the character that's always been down there. Trials reveal the actual condition of our heart. They reveal our trust or lack thereof in the good promises of God. If you think about a tea bag, okay, so say somebody presents you with a tea bag, you really don't know if it's good tea until you've put it in hot water. And then you put it in hot water and then you take a sip and it's either bitter or it's sweet. But you don't know that until the tea bag has been immersed in the hot water for a while. So this was the case with Job. Job is sort of the prototypical sufferer in the Bible. And uh, Job's wife also suffered along with him going through the same exact circumstances. And, 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 and what was revealed through, through great immense suffering with Job and his wife you know, after, you know, through an act of terror, they lost their money, their business, their property, and, and all ten of their children, if you could imagine that. And Job is afflicted with sores, it says, from head to toe because he also gets sick. And then his friends abandon them. Instead of being friends to him who show up and sympathize, they show up and start accusing him and blaming the death of his ten children on him on some mysterious mistake or error or sin or violation that he's committed that they can't identify, but it must have happened because bad things don't happen to people who are faithful to God. Bad things only happen to people who aren't faithful to God. So, of course, Job, since bad things are happening to you, you must have done something wrong, which is, of course, terrible theology. You'd have to say the same things about Jesus if that position was true. But you've got two tea bags. Job, you, you see, is revealed through his trials as, as, as the tea bag that's full of, of sweet tea. When he's immersed in the hot water, what does he do? The first impulse that Job has is to, to his knee jerk is to bow to the ground and pray the words that we sang earlier. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, and, and Job's wife, who's, who's going through the same circumstances, instead of turning her face toward God, turns her face away from God, and the words out of her mouth are, Job, are you holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. Same circumstances. Two people. Same household. Completely different revelations of what had always been down there in both of them. 
The mountaintop experiences are a very poor indicator of what's really down there in our hearts. It's the trials, it's the hot water, it's the immersion in suffering and sorrow that shows what's really down there. Some of us will turn our face toward God, others of us will turn our backs on God when we're in the hot water. But trials are also designed to build and bolster and strengthen character. In verses 3 through 5, James makes what seems to be a really strange statement when he says, count it all joy when you suffer trials because of the testing of your faith and how the testing of your faith, here's why you, why you count it all joy, the testing of your faith produces something. It's a means towards something that, that James refers to as steadfastness. It's this resilience, this inner poise, this, this joy that, that the hymn writer talks about that seeks us through pain even. Now, so we're in Nashville, Tennessee, so, so maybe a guitar uh, analogy would work. Uh, many of you know how to play guitar. You've learned to play guitar. And uh, you may remember very early on in the process when you just started to finger the fretboard and, 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 and put your fingers down on, on the strings, and you may remember how painful it was. And if you had an instructor, your instructor might have said, if it, it feels like you can only play 10 minutes, play 20. And if it feels like you can only play 20 minutes, play 30. And eventually, you'll be able to play the guitar for hours and hours and hours with very minimal pain. And so, what the instructor is trying to help you as the student understand is that, that the more you play, the thicker your skin will get, even though it feels like in the process your skin's getting thinner, it's actually getting thicker. And, and even though it feels like your, your, your skin is getting weaker, your skin is actually getting stronger, and in the end you have these calluses that enable you to effortlessly play the instrument. Yeah, there are, there are probably a lot of parents in here, those of you with kids, who have looked for an opportunity to expose your child at a young age to chicken pox, right? Because they say the earlier you get the chicken pox, the, 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 more, the, you know, the better um, sort of prepared you are um, you know, against the, the, the really horrible things the disease could do to you later in life. And so parents try to expose their kids to it so the kids get it early and knock, knocked out of the way. So what happens in that process? Antibodies form that, 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 that build up an immunity to this disease. And so what, what James is talking about here is how in the same way through trial, an immunity is built up against character sickness. Antibodies of the soul begin to form and make us less susceptible to character sickness when trials come. It's a good kind of callus that forms in the human heart, but it's not the kind of callus that hardens you. It's actually the kind of callus that softens you to the way and wisdom and will of God. It's a weakness that is transformed into, into strength, and it's a strength that is formed through weakness. So Johnny Erickson Tata, who spent uh, all of her life since her teen years in a wheelchair, paralyzed from the neck down as a quadriplegic from a, a diving accident 
in her uh, teen years that was actually the occasion that, that, that really catapulted her in the arms of Jesus. And she says now in retrospect, in her, her older years, my paralysis was actually part of God's strategy to further his gospel. And, and, and of course, what she's talking about is the worldwide movement that has begun, that, 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 that actually started with her affliction as a teenager and that has blossomed into Johnny and Friends, which is a worldwide movement of, 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 of people ministering to and serving and lifting the spirits of those with special needs and disabilities. And it's a movement that will outlast Johnny. Kierkegaard said something similar about what he called the thorn in his foot. It was a physical injury, and he said, the, the thorn in my foot has enabled me to spring higher than anyone with sound feet. C.S. Lewis talked about this in The Problem of Pain when he said, we human beings are a divine work of art, something that God is making, and therefore something with which God will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. C.S. Lewis called this the intolerable compliment. Trials permitted by God as an intolerable, because it's very real. We resist suffering like Jesus did at the tomb of Lazarus. We weep over it. We, we get angry at it. We resist it like David did in the Psalms when he's crying, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But the prayer always seems to end, doesn't it, for those strong sort of you know, sweet bag of tea souls. It seems to, the, the, the prayer always seems to end with the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. While Job's bitter wife turns her back on God, Job's face and the psalmist's face and C.S. Lewis's face as his die, wife died from cancer, wrestled deeply. See that in a grief observed, but, but in the end, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You interpret your circumstances in light of what you know about God's character rather than interpreting God's character in light of your circumstances. That's what wisdom is. That's what the book of James is all about, wisdom, which is our second heading. You know, what C.S. Lewis is getting at, what Johnny Erickson Tata and Kierkegaard are getting at, is that Christianity is a paradox because there is a joy there that seeks us precisely in and through the pain and rarely separate from it. You know, there's this curious phrase from James here where he tells us to interpret trials. It's in verse 5. Interpret trials when they come as God giving generously. <laughs> Unbelievable. What's God giving generously? What could God possibly be giving generously when hardships are happening, it's right there, wisdom. If any of you lacks wisdom when you're in trial, ask God for it. And wisdom is simply this, the ability to see things as God sees them. The ability to understand and to trust that God's thoughts and God's ways are higher and superior to ours. Wisdom is the ability to trust, or as it says in verse 6, to have faith that God's truth, God's character, God's promises are bigger than, are superior than our feelings, our experiences, our circumstances, and the voice of our culture. And not only this, God's truth, God's character, and God's promises are truer than 
our feelings, our experiences, our circumstances, and our culture, and, and the voice of our culture. So, um, Tim Keller, you, you'll see in a, over the next few minutes, I, I got a lot from this point, from, of this point from, from Tim Keller's reflections. Tim says this, Wisdom is what, you would have, is, what, is what you would have prayed for if you knew everything that God knows. Wisdom is what you would have prayed for if you saw everything that God sees. What seems foolish is actually wisdom. And what seems wise in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of the human flesh is actually foolish. You know, Job's wife actually calls Job a fool for staying with God when, when, when the, the whole irony of that is Job is the one who's sitting there in wisdom as he suffers while his wife turns her back on God as a fool. His wisdom would ask God for different things if we knew what God knows and if we understood what God understands. The thing about wisdom, too, is it requires a regular workout. Just like, you know, if you, if you stop playing guitar for musicians for a, a month or two, the calluses start, you know, start to thin out again, and, and, and the pain returns, and, and, and the dexterity decreases, and you're not able to play with the same freedom as you were before. You, you've got to keep doing your scales every day. And, and, and uh, you know, this, this applies to working out, the working out of the body. It, it applies to the working out of the mind to continue to, you know, engage your mind in things or else you get a flabby brain, you get flabby fingertips on, on your musical instruments. And the phrase that he uses here in verse 8 about a flabby soul is double-mindedness. Double-mindedness that's unstable and that gets tossed around like, like small things get tossed around and unstable things get tossed around in the sea. The, the Greek word here is dipsychos, two psyches, a split personality is what he's talking about based on circumstances. That's what an unstable person is. It, it's a person who has a split personality depending on the circumstances. They become a different person, whereas a stable person who is also the wise person, is the person who over time becomes consistently more and more the same person in the face of trial as he or she is in the face of happy things. The same person in the valley as he or she is on the mountaintops. The same person gutting it out on Monday as they are in church right at the climax of a music set. What Romans 12, the Apostle Paul says, is the cure for the double-minded mindset. You know, where Job's wife can be happy with all of the wealth and the thriving business and the large property and, 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 and the, the house full of children. You know, she, she can you know, be praising God and, and, and rejoicing in that moment and, the, and then completely turning her back on God, which you know, how many of us wouldn't in those circumstances? I think she is owed some compassion, certainly from from others who have had deep trouble in the, in the face of suffering. But, but, but what, what distinguishes Job from Job's wife is a transforming 
by the renewing of the mind, which is what Romans 12 talks about. Job is anchored in truth. He speaks to the lies that the enemy is telling him with the truth. He contradicts the lies. He confronts them with the truth. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. In other words, I'm not entitled to another breath. And if the Lord wants to take my life now, that's his prerogative because my life is not my own. My life belongs to my Creator. That's wisdom. So there's never been a society that is more in need of wisdom than the society that we live in now, especially when when suffering comes. So Tim Keller says that we have actually in the West developed into what he calls a crybaby culture. Like the fragile flower described in verse 10 that wilts away with, with, with just a little bit of wind blowing. You know, experience setback in your life? Sue somebody. It's somebody else's fault. A friend exposes a character flaw in us, hit eject on the relationship, and blame them for the dissolution of the friendship. The boss offers a constructive criticism, and we have an emotional meltdown and start looking for other work. Suffering comes, and we curse God like Job's wife. We don't even leave room for the possibility that God may be up to something that we don't quite understand yet behind the scenes as he was for Job. We're not even open to that possibility. Instead, we, we just fall into and give into deep cynicism. So, so Jonathan Edwards, what, what, what was the secret for Jonathan Edwards? One was that, that, that it was sink or swim for them in those days because they lived in a world that did not have things like penicillin, where the life expectancy was less than 40 years old. And so if you read the books that were written, particularly by the leading Christians in those times, what you see is a very real, honest engagement with suffering, combined with a sense of hope and a sense of poise. You, you, you read Jonathan Edwards, you read John Bunyan, you read Thomas Watson, the, the, the Puritans. You read the African-American writings during, during sort of pre-civil rights era especially. And you'll see this, the reality of suffering, really naming it and crying out and wrestling with God as Job did, as the psalmist did, and yet using the suffering as an occasion to turn our face toward God, to pray our broken feelings to Him rather than turning our back on God and dismissing him in the rear view and falling into cynicism and despair. How is joy sustained for people like Jonathan Edwards and, and, and Bunyan and Watson and all of these others? Again, Tim Keller puts it this way, if you poked them, they would bleed Scripture because they had spent the duration of their lives preparing for that moment that they knew was coming because death was all around them by transforming and renewing their minds with the truth about God and the truth about life, which is found in the truth of the Old and New Testaments. By the way, this, this, this wisdom is all over our community here at CPC. It's stunning. One of, the, one of the most wonderful, breathtaking, convicting, heartwarming things that I have gotten to experience in just short of four years is watching how well so many people here die. 
repeatedly, person after person after person, struggling with honesty against cancer and disease and and, and sorrow, and yet with hope. And then preaching to us from their graves, as was the case with Lynn Wheeler, who, like Johnny Erickson Tata, was confined to a, a wheelchair for many, many years. And then David Filson gets up here in the sermon and, and, and said that Lynn would want us to know, because this is the way that she lived her life, that she was not confined to her wheelchair, that her wheelchair actually became her pulpit. You know, another uh, person in their 60s from our community spent about two years uh, visiting him in his home every month or so, and his, his, his body was withering away, just like Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4. The outer man was wasting away from disease, and yet what, what remained immovable for him was his confidence that God was in control, and the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I asked him toward the end of that, those few years, right before his death, I said, what is your secret? Somebody like me needs to know what it is that makes somebody like you tick. And his answer was this, I've been a Bible reader all my life. That's it. You want to ready yourself for the inevitable, for the mortality rate of one person to every one person, as I'm frequent to remind you, because it's something we need to know in a culture like ours that avoids the thought of death. And yet it's coming for all of us. All of you are going to, most of you are going to bury the person sitting next to you one day, or they're going to bury you. We have to be ready. And, and, and you've got the, the, the people who suffer most beautifully responding to the question, it's the truth of God that gives me the hope that I have. Or as Spurgeon said, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to somebody who isn't. After the 8.30 service, I preached this very same sermon, the first two people who couldn't wait to find me afterwards to give me a yes, that's right, that's what I'm talking about. One of them has cancer, the other one has ALS, recently diagnosed in the last year. Why? Bible readers all of our lives. There's no shortcut. It, you have, this is how, the, this is how the, 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 the tender-hearted forming calluses of the soul are built through the daily going up and down the scales, getting those fingertips strong so that, so that when it's time to get on the stage, so when your moment, when your Job moment comes, you're ready to stand behind the mic and play with the strength that God gives to you. Hopeful realism. That's what Christianity offers. The realism part is you can be as honest as your feelings are about how crummy the suffering is, because Christianity is an honest religion, and simultaneously hopeful because this life is one little chapter in the big story that God is writing one little chapter. It's the middle chapter, and the middle chapters in the good stories are the ones that, that, that include all the hardship and suffering and trial and fight and wrestling and on the brink of death stuff, right? But in the end, boom, happily ever after. And that's the great thing about this fairy tale that's called the gospel is it is the fairy tale that's true. The happily ever after that you've always wished for is actually true. 
Because of what? Because of the supportive presence, the suffering servant, Jesus, who did hyperstand in ways that we can't under trial. The only one who was truly, as James says, complete and perfect and lacking nothing. The high priest who was tempted in every way, tested and tried in every way, just as we are, worse than Job was, yet without sin. Eventually, Job's suffering even got the best of him, and he started smart-alecking to God, but not Jesus. Jesus, the elder brother, hyper-endured all the way to the end, and it's His unflappable resilience that carries us in our delicate flower, fragile, frightened states. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Did you hear that? Hebrews says it. He learned obedience. It was even a process that Jesus submitted to. Jesus started with only the ability to to do a 10-pound bicep curl, and he learned through suffering to carry the weight of the world. Even Jesus went through that process. And when he was tested in the wilderness, when he was tempted in the wilderness, what did he do with every temptation that that, that the enemy threw at him? The temptation to, to go for power instead of sacrifice, to go for comfort instead of service, to go for money instead of solidarity with the poor. And every time, what, Jesus, what did Jesus do but speak to the lies with truth? It is written. It is written. It is written. Even Jesus hyperstood because he'd been a Bible reader all of his life. It's all in there. It's all there. And you don't need health insurance for it. And then if you poke Jesus, what would happen? He would bleed. Literally, they poked him on the cross, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. And as he bled, after he was poked with the nails, as he bled, what did he bleed? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verbatim from Psalm 22. His joy, he endured, he hyperstood for the joy that was set before him, which was the joy of knowing that the happily ever after is true, that he would be united with his bride around a wedding feast. And that from that point forward, every day, will be better than the day before. Every chapter will be happier than the last. And we will, instead of growing older and older and tireder and tireder, we'll grow younger and younger and stronger and stronger in the last chapters, which are chapters that will go on and on and on and on and on. This feast, the bread and the cup in front of us, are the foretaste of that. We get a little bit of reserves from the wedding feast of the Lamb put right in front of us. We get a little bit of an appetizer from that feast every week. 